people don't just vanish into thin air. Or do they? Hey everybody, welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today I'm drinking my vodka and Mio while I cover the case of Annie Lee and Raymond Clark III. Annie Marie Lay was born on July 3rd in 1985 in San Jose, California. She was born to a Vietnamese-American family. She was valedictorian of her graduating class at Union Mine High School in El Dorado, California. She was even voted most likely to be the next Einstein. I wish I would have had that title. After earning approximately $160,000 in scholarship money, she attended and graduated from the University of Rochester in New York. Her major was cell developmental biology with a minor in medical anthropology. Annie was then accepted into the graduate program at Yale that would lead her into earning a doctorate in pharmacology. Her research had applications in the treatment of diabetes and certain forms of cancer. That was her dream. She wanted to help cure cancer. She was 24 years old, and she was living her best life. She was so happy. She was in her final year before graduation, and she was about to be a married woman. On September 13th, 2009, she's supposed to marry in Sasset, New York, to longtime boyfriend Jonathan Wadowski. He was a graduate student in applied physics and mathematics at Columbia University. But just days to go before the big day, she had lots of planning to do and just a lot on her plate. On September 8, 2009, Annie was on the New Haven campus in the research building. She was finishing up all loose ends before she was about to leave. She was done. She was off to go get married, go on her honeymoon, and then, of course, she'd be back. But she'd be gone for a little while. When it got to be about 9 o'clock that evening and she hadn't returned home, her roommates at Yale started to get really concerned. So one of them called the cops. They just knew something wasn't right. When the cops go to the university, the first thing they want to check out is her office. So they go and they're looking at her desk to see if anything stands out. And right away, her purse is there. Her cell phone, there's credit cards, cash. All this is at her office in the Sterling Hall. So within 24 hours into her disappearance, they had put out the missing persons report and they started to look over the video footage at the campus. They had a lot of footage to go over. There's 75 security cameras. That's a lot of cameras. But they literally went all around the building. So there's no way, no how, anybody could get on campus and leave without being noticed. It had the front entrance to the building. It had the halls in the building. Everything is monitored. Not to mention, you have to have a Yale identification card to be able to open and access all these halls, these rooms. No one can just walk in off the street. When they started to comb over the footage, they knew that she arrived around 10 a.m. So that's pretty much when they geared up the camera. She was seen walking from the Sterling Hall, where her office is, to another campus. 
This building is at 10 Amistead Street. That's where the research laboratory is located. It was actually a basement of Yale, but that's where it housed the animals that they would use for the experiments and research. They saw her enter this building at 10 a.m. They see her. They see her walk in. But as they sit and they watch the cameras, they never see her leave. So they're a little puzzled. So now they need to request her access for her card, her badge. But this is going to take some time. They got lots of time to kill because, again, there's still so much footage. We're talking hours upon hours upon hours of footage. So much that they had to hire multiple people. Think how many times they probably had to rewind and watch. This was an all-day, all-night thing. They shut down the campus so no one else was going in, no one else was going out, and they started looking for clues. This got the attention of the FBI, the New Haven Police Department, and the Connecticut State Police. They all joined forces in the search to help find Annie. The more and more they combed over all the hallways in this building, they just don't understand why they don't see her anywhere. Where did she go? One of the detectives thought, maybe she didn't walk out of here. Let's check the dump. So they went to the Hartford dump where Yale's garbage is taken to see if they could find any evidence there. It just didn't appear that she walked out of there. The other police officers that were looking over all the footage, they started looking for people with boxes or big bags, anything that could have been used to conceal her. They didn't know if maybe they shoved her in a bag or whatnot. She was a very tiny girl. Needless to say, maybe if somebody had like one of those big gym bags or a rolling suitcase, she could have fit in there. At 12.50, they notice that the building all of a sudden is just pouring out people. And all these people are holding their ears. It was a fire drill. So now they're like, well, fuck, we're looking for, but now we're going to see everybody all at once. So it's kind of good because everyone has to leave the building. You have to see her. If she's in there, you're going to see her leave. The bad thing is, it's a whole lot of people all at once. So a lot of freeze framing and making sure she didn't slip through the cracks. Again, she was never seen on video. People don't just evaporate in the thin air. Where did she go? On September 13th, The day she was supposed to become Miss Wadowski, they finally got her keycard information. It showed them that when she walked in the building about 10 and it took her two minutes and she swiped into room G13. That was her laboratory. So they know that she made it to her room. When they first kind of took a tour and looked around, that room seemed very cluttered. And they didn't see anything out of sorts, but they just didn't really think anything of it. It just looked very crammed. While they were running her key card, they pretty much ran everybody's. They wanted to know who else was in this room. And they found that there were two people that also swiped into that room. There was Raymond Clark III and another man. When they brought them both in for questioning, they both said what they were doing that day, what time they got off. When's the last time they saw her? And they both gave up their DNA. They continue to watch the footage. They watch these two men. They want to see if their story checks out. Did they really get to work the time they said they did? 
Did they really leave the time they say they did? Does anything look amiss out of the ordinary? Personality change? Anything? Anyone carrying anything? The one man, I believe he was like a contractor or something. He was pretty much cleared right off the bat. And at first glance, Raymond also appeared to have checked out. He came in when he did. He left when he did. That was until one detective made a crucial find. When they washed Raymond, when the alarm went off, he was seen wearing blue scrubs. When he first got to work, he was in street clothes. But then I guess some of the techs changed into scrubs. I mean, I guess you don't want to get that stuff on your clothes. He left. Well, when he came back, he was also wearing blue scrubs. And he left again in his street clothes. The detective then compared the two images, and that's when he noticed that, yes, scrubs seemed to be the same scrubs, but there was a difference. The drawstring colors. When he first left for the fire alarm, it appeared to be like an orange-red drawstring. And when he was coming back from the alarm, it was blue. So now they know he changed clothes. Why did he change clothes? So now they're going to go back into G13, and they're going to look now a lot deeper. They're going to move shit and see what they can find. And it was there they found their first clue. On one of her steel carts, they found a drop of blood. They weren't sure if he would actually do the act in her lab, since there are other people around. They kind of went into an adjoining room, which was G22. It was in there that they found beads on the floor that looked like it came from a necklace. Looked like a necklace that she was wearing in the video when she was going to the basement. They also found a yellow tarp, like a poncho, and there was blood on it. They now know Annie's not walking out of this building. So that's when they call in a cadaver dog. It wasn't long before the dog found Annie. She was found in the basement of the laboratory. In the wall. In the fucking wall, people. What in the actual fuck? She was found upside down behind a metal plate that I guess this compartment was used for some kind of plumbing, something of that nature. Looked like a couple different resources. Everyone had something different to what this thing was. To me, it kind of looked like a circuit box, but there's just no circuit board. It's just the wall and the hole but you can see all the crap behind it. I watched See No Evil on Oxygen, and they said it was some kind of plumbing contraption. So, But a lot of the articles I found were saying other things. Her bra was pushed up, and her panties were pushed down. When they looked around a little more, some of the officers started poking at the ceiling tiles. And they got lucky there, too. They found a white sock and a single blue glove in one of the ceiling tiles. Well, Annie only had one sock on and one glove on. Due to the high security measures in that building, authorities, they knew that it would be extremely difficult for someone without a Yale ID card to enter the basement where Annie's body was discovered. It made them have to focus their investigation on Yale employees and students. It was one of their own. When they looked at the sign-in sheet for G22, They saw that Raymond Clark was in and out of that room 11 times that day. And it was in that period of time that she was missing. They also noted that you had to initial in a book for this room. All of his initials were in a green pen. 
Well, at 1.30, when he came back into the room again after the fire alarm, it changed to a black pen. They found a green pen along with her body. It was behind her body. I don't know if somehow she got her hand on it and took it. Or I I don't know if maybe he had it in his hand and he placed it in there with her. I don't know. When they tested the DNA on the pen, the gloves, the sock, the yellow tarp, all of them were positive for not only Annie's DNA, but Raymond's DNA. Her autopsy showed that she had a broken clavicle and a broken jaw. They also found seminal fluid on her panty liner, but it wasn't enough to test for DNA evidence. Looking at the history of their day, they were able to piece together a timeline of what they believe happened. That at 10.35, he read the email stating that it was her last day. And five minutes later, he was in room G13. So he read that email and flew over there. He must have approached her, maybe made a sexual attempt, moved her to G22, killed her. Then he tried to find a place to put her. But at 12.50, the fire alarm went off. So he had to leave. Everybody had to leave the building. When he comes back, he returns to room G22 and moves her body to the bathroom where she stays there until around 3.48 when he put her in the wall. He ended up taking a plea deal for 44 years for murder and attempted assault. Her family said that at her funeral, everybody there could feel her presence very, very strongly. They do believe she was there. He never gave a motive. But I think it's obvious that it was jealousy, it was greed, it was envy, it was, if I can't have you, no one can. And it's crazy. When I pulled up the picture of her and her fiancé, Raymond and Jonathan looked a lot alike. It was really weird. If you want to see the comparison, you can look on my Instagram or Facebook page because I have a picture of her and her fiancé and then Raymond. And you can see how crazy alike they look. It's kind of weird. So I don't know if he's like, hey, that guy looks like me. Why can't I be him? Like I said before, I'm not sure if she did take that green pen on purpose. But if she did, that was brilliant. It's so important to remember. I know, obviously, things are going through your mind very fast in these situations if you're being attacked. But you have to remember, you need to scratch. You need to pull hair. You need to protect yourself. Get DNA any way you can. If you have a hair scrunchie or something, leave it at a scene. Let people know you are there. Little things like that can not only save your life sometimes or help convict the fucker who took it. If you guys are enjoying this podcast, make sure that you like, follow, subscribe. If you listen to me on Apple, make sure to leave a five-star review. If you're listening to me on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe. If you haven't yet, go check out CrimeOverCocktails.com. That's where you can listen to episodes, you can shop merch, or you can become a Patreon and get the early access to episodes as early as Tuesday. And that could be at just $1 a month. I want to let you guys know that I did get a new Facebook page. So if you were following my old page, please look for the new Crime Over Cocktails Facebook page. You'll be able to tell because you'll see recent posts. So come find me. Thank you guys for your love and support. I really appreciate it. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving and we'll talk crime another time. Bye.